All right, I invite you to take your Bibles. We're going to read together Psalm 24, if you prefer. The words will be up on the monitors as well. A Psalm of David. Okay, the 24th Psalm, it's verses 1 through 10. It's not long, but we're going to read it in its entirety. This is the Word of God. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he? This King of glory, the Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Amen. This sermon, as I indicated last week, it's largely uh, largely a continuation of last week's sermon. Seven days ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I hope you recall its basic theme, that as a Christian, your commitment to God is inherent in who you are in Christ. And therefore, because of that, it's nothing less than total. And that commitment, everything, is a proportionate response to God who has given to you totally. Now, to rightly understand this giving, we should first note that what is asked and answered in the psalm that we just read, verse 10, who is this king of glory? Who is he? Well, David, David expresses praise to the creator who has a right to the earth's fullness because he's made everything. He made the earth and everything on it. That's you and me. Or it includes you and me, right? That's verses 1 and 2. In verse 3, he goes on to ask and answer questions about who will have the right to stand in the Lord's holy temple, the place where the favor of God was seen and felt most directly under the old covenant. And those who stand there must, we're told, they must have clean hands and they must have pure hearts which is a reference to the life of the faithful under that covenant. And then then in verse 5, we read that those who walk in such ways that they are promised righteousness, which in this context means something akin to vindication 
and blessing. If you're a Christian, then in Christ, you have an abundance of both of those. Both vindication, right? Despite the accusations of Satan, right? The enemy, you are cleared of blame. Vindicated. You have total righteousness in Christ. And of course, of course, you have many, many blessings. Most notably, by the way, would be the forgiveness of your sin. Which results in eternal life. Which results in an inheritance, a heavenly inheritance. You know that we can do nothing, nothing to merit eternal life. But it doesn't follow that we can do nothing to experience more of God's favor once we have been engrafted into the body of Christ through faith alone. Obedience to the Lord's covenant stipulations, they can keep us and do keep us. They protect us from the harsher forms of his discipline and they grant us many blessings that we otherwise would not be able to enjoy when we're disobedient. Right? We forego blessings when we're disobedient. Therefore, we must seek to follow him Not sometimes, but in all things, in all ways. And one of those things is giving to the Lord Almighty, to the King of glory. Now let's look at some of the aspects of why that is. And then how we're to respond to the blessings that are mentioned in this Psalms verse 5. First of all, God took the initiative of giving. We're not being ever asked to initiate generosity. It's always a response. God the Father took the immeasurable initiative by giving his most trusted and most loving relationship, that of his son. He turned his back on the son who was dying upon the cross as a propitiation for you. I use that word purposefully. I'm going to explain it. Hopefully you've heard it before. But that word, though rarely used nowadays, and it's not well understood, propitiation. It means more than merely a substitute. Yes, it does mean that. Jesus died in our place. But propitiation goes beyond mere substitution, and it carries with it the idea of Atonement, which actually has more meaning to it. It's more than just paying off a debt. Propitiation has the added component of satisfaction. So in the case of the death of Jesus, the eternal debt of sin was paid, and the punishment of the debtor, not just the debt, but the punishment of the debtor was satisfactory to the father. That's who it satisfies. Anything short of a perfect, sinless, bloody sacrifice, that would fall short then of God's requirement for justice. And so the son's death was a complete payment, and it was a complete punishment, which provided complete satisfaction to assuage the wrath that God would have imposed on you and me. You get all that? 
Propitiation. It's a good word, especially to remember it when you contemplate what God has done for you, the sinner who believes. All right, so God is the giver of everything, everything. Not only of your life, but everything you have. Verse 1 of Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We are his. It's not in my notes, but the Heidelberg Catechism comes to my mind. The very first one, we, 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 we kind of rely, if you will, to help us interpret the scriptures by the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Heidelberg Catechism is a good one. It just happens to be for another region where it was founded, that of the continent of Europe. The Westminster Confession came from the island, right? The, the Great Britain area, Westminster, United Kingdom, London. But it says, that, what's my only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I am not my own. And it goes on to say that I was bought at a price, that I'm Jesus's. And so to conclude a brief summary of last week's sermon, stewardship, which is the management of God's gift. Honorable stewardship, it demonstrates our understanding and our appreciation that God gave to us everything that we have, starting first with his son. And in this life, God has blessed you and me with abilities and with availability and with resources. Your stewardship of those blessings, it will reflect your heart. How you manage those reflects what's inside. So it's a healthy question to ask of yourself, to really ascertain what's inside. Ask yourself, where's my treasure? Where is it? What do I pay attention to? Is it managed in a matter that serves the purposes of God? Does how you spend your time and your money tell a story of your heart's desire to grow God's kingdom? Is that the picture it paints? And so when we consider the resources that we have and the responsibility that comes with those resources, it's imperative that we keep in mind what I call these three G words. Grace, gratitude, and giving. And I put them in that order purposefully because if you understand grace, then you will naturally be grateful. It'll be an outflow. And if you're grateful, then you will naturally give. It'll be an outflow. I'm going to add a fourth G because your level of giving, your generosity, that's the fourth G, generosity, will be proportionate to what you understand, right? To your sense of grace and your resultant level of gratitude. And what I'm about to preach for the remainder of the sermon does focus on that third G. It focuses on giving. But to properly address that, I feel compelled, I want to dispel something that you may find surprising. When I was a new believer, many, many years ago as a young man, I regularly ran into Christians, well-meaning Christians, no doubt, but I ran into those who would instruct me about tithing. 10%, they would say. 
And then they would get into a debate about what that meant. Inevitably, Malachi 3 would be quoted some way, come up regarding God's challenge, really God's command, to bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And then they would argue about whether or not your material increase meant tithing from your gross income or from your net income, right, your take-home pay. And, you know, what's the Bible talk about that? I have to say that was discouraging to me because it sounded quite legalistic. I needed a calculator to figure out how to give to God. Plus, and this is the interesting part, there's nothing in the New Testament requiring a tithe. It's not there. Does that surprise some of you? The word tithe, which literally means tenth, tithe, tenth, it's not found in the New Testament, at least in the way that I'm about to explain it. Except, by the way, in the relation to the Pharisees who were stuck on the legal aspects of the Old Testament, that law. And they had no appreciation for the greater things of God. The Pharisees, by the way, they mistakenly thought that way because from the very beginning, the Jewish people were instructed to bring tithes to God. They were to bring tithes of their produce and of their livestock, of their increase, what they had. You can check that out, by the way, in Leviticus 27, verse 30. Of all the material that they received or sold, a tenth of it would be immediately set aside for the well-being and for the purposes of God. The people of God were to then pay tithes, a tenth, to the Levites, You can check that out in Numbers 18, verse 24. Those Levites then, in turn, were required to give a tenth of those tithes, those received tithes, to their priests. Priests, it's a hard word to say. And so in Israel, that principle of tithing, it worked upon itself throughout the society. When you read the Old Testament, you'll discover that This pattern was firmly and it was fairly established, but like all laws, it was occasionally abused and neglected. I'm not going to give you a bunch of cross-references, but you can find examples of the stories anyway with Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. In 1 Samuel, regarding Eli's sons, worthless sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and then in Nehemiah's discovery, you can read about how the tithes were being overlooked. The point I'm trying to make here is that the Bible's teaching about tithing is, firstly and primarily, that it was the basic pattern of giving in the Old Testament. All right, the basic pattern of giving in the Old Testament. Secondly, it also teaches us that tithing is not stated as an obligation in the New Testament. It's a pattern in the Old but it's nowhere an obligation in the new. In fact, if you're looking for tithing, if you take up a a concordance and you look for tithing in the New Testament, you're going to be hard-pressed. Again, you'll find, for example, the references that I alluded to earlier. They were made by Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew 23, as well as in Mark and Luke. His references to the Pharisees who set their commitment to tithing above the more weightier aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and then he chides them for it. 
Another helpful principle to understand this is that the scriptures unfold. Look, this is a great principle to to remember, not just with giving, but with all aspects of the scripture, especially with relation to salvation, uh, the redemption of how God acts throughout history. The scriptures unfold the revelation of God as the Bible moves through Genesis, through Malachi, and then from Matthew through Revelation. The best example I can give you of this is what we call the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. Right? You'll remember that in Genesis, God establishes with Adam and his posterity, right? humankind after Adam, this, this thing called a covenant of grace. And he promises a Messiah after the sin of man, after the fall of Adam. But he doesn't explain it all. Then, this unfolds throughout the Bible. God advances this idea of the covenant of grace with additional revelation that God gives in subsequent supporting or subsidiary covenants throughout history with Noah, the Noahic covenant. It informs us that salvation is not just of man, but it's also including all of creation, right? All of nature, more revelation. Then that covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. It explains that salvation is not just for individuals, but it's for families. It works through families and it involves a nation. And the covenant with Moses, right, the Mosaic covenant, it tells us about the law, which is gracious, right? It's part of this covenant of grace. It's gracious in that it shows us that we can't keep God's commands and it points us to Jesus who will keep it on our behalf. And then the covenant that God made with David, the Davidic covenant. All these support the covenant of grace, okay? But the Davidic covenant shows us that the kingship of Israel, David's earthly throne over the physical nation of Israel, that one day that's going to expand into a heavenly kingdom, a throne with an eternal king. Not just the throne on today's Jerusalem, Israel, with the prime minister of Benjamin Netanyahu, right? We're talking more of a new Jerusalem that's spoken about in Revelation, whose citizens are the spiritual seed of Abraham, those who are saved. Those are the citizens that will live in the new Jerusalem, and therefore they're called the spiritual Israel. And then finally in the New Testament, Jesus fulfills all of these covenant promises and arrangements. He fulfills that covenant of grace with what he calls the new covenant in his blood. The Messiah promised to mankind in Genesis is fulfilled in Jesus. So if the Bible unfolds God's revelation as it does, then you might expect You might expect to find that what's present in the Gospels will then be worked out in history, the history of the church, in Acts. And then by the time you get to the letters, either of James or John or Peter or Paul, that these individuals will be provided to us some sort of inscripturated truth that's essential, right? Abiding significant elements that biblical theology and Christian living 
teach us. Okay, it does do that. We learn a lot, a lot in those letters and how the Gospels are worked out in Acts and the epistles. But with all that said, when you read those letters in the New Testament and you're looking for questions and answers on tithing, you're confronted by a large silence. The bottom line is it's just not there. This is significant. After all, someone like Paul, right, Paul's credentials, who was brought up in a strictly monotheistic, right, not, not polytheistic, one God, the true God. He was brought up in that monotheistic Jewish home who was by his own designation a Hebrew of Hebrews. We might expect that such an individual like that in writing to the churches, the many epistles that he wrote to the churches of his day, that he would have laid down some sort of ongoing abiding place for the Old Testament pattern, or at least, at least he would have alluded to it as a passing reference to the principle and how it would be applied, right? That principle of tithing. But in fact, he doesn't do it. And that's why If you have a keen eye, some of you do, some of you might have overlooked it, but if you have a keen eye and an attentive ear to the prayer of dedication this morning, our session has removed from the bulletin the word tithe, right, from the offertory section. It's not there, it just says offering. I encouraged them to do that earlier this month from Scripture because I want want our giving to come not from a legal percentage, but from our hearts. Offerings, because we're grateful for the grace that's been given to us. If tithing's an Old Testament pattern of giving, then to apply that pattern to a New Testament fulfillment, wherein the heart is now the measuring stick, okay, it's not a calculator, it's the heart, then that would not only limit your giving, but it would also point us backwards to pre-covenantal fulfillment. It would point us to the Old Testament before Jesus. And that's just a shadow of the reality. The Old Testament pointed to the fulfillment. We now have the fulfillment. Now, am I saying that the New Testament does not apply apply the principle of the tithe? It must also be said, and I don't mean to confuse you here, but it also must be said that it doesn't set it aside. Stay with me. In other words, you can't find a verse that says, oh, and by the way, the tithe is no longer applicable. It's gone forever. You can't point to that chapter and verse. Again, I don't want to confuse you, but I want you to think of it this way. If it doesn't establish it, as a principle, or rather, it doesn't establish it as a principle, but nor does it in any overt or straightforward way. It doesn't set it aside. And therefore, it's not unreasonable to assume that the New Testament presupposes that the giving of God's people would more than equal that pattern of giving that was established under the Old Covenant. Let me say that to you again. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me here. 
The New Testament does not lay down the principle of the tithe, but neither does it set it aside. And it's therefore not unreasonable to assume that in its silence, it presupposes that our giving will more than equal it. Now, why do I say that? I want you to look at it this way, all right? The New Testament is a fulfillment of the old. It's more. It's far more than the old. It's the fulfillment of the old. In the New Testament, salvation is expanded to include the Gentiles, women, and girls, right? Females. They become included in the sign and seal of God's covenant people. In the Old Testament, you'll know that, you'll remember that only males were circumcised. But in the New Testament, all of God's covenant children are baptized. And yes, there is a direct correlation to circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. They are both signs and seals of God's covenant people. Being a covenant child, if you will, of God. Further, in the Old Testament, the law was written on paper and on tablets of stone. Not so in the New. In the New Testament, that law is deeper. It's greater. It's more revealing. It's more personal because it is written on the hearts of God's people. And in, and in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is given to every believer. And look, these are just some examples of how the New Testament expands on the old, how that fulfillment of Jesus in the New Testament provides more for us, for his church, than in the old. So if you want to apply that to giving then we have to include that 10% tithing, right? That Old Testament pattern is but a good starting point for New Testament giving for the believers in these last days. That's us. I'm not going to give you an amount. I'm not going to give you a percentage. That principle is not in the New Testament. But I am going to tell you that the New Testament teaches or treats giving in light of fulfillment. And so as to an amount, you should, give, you should give cheerfully, not what I say, but what you have self-determined to give in your heart. And that is in the Bible. Okay, that's 2 Corinthians 9, verses 7 and 8. I'll read that to you now. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly, or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. That's the Holy Spirit writing through Paul. That's truth. Something to reread in your own time for sure. Drawing a bit from last week's sermon. Excuse me, we saw that the collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem, we saw that it was to be regular. They were to set aside money 
in a manner that was regular on the first day of every week. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Okay, so regular. Every week it says. We also noted that it was to be proportionate in keeping with their income. Well, that of course leaves the burden of amount very much with you, with the person. Again, what your heart tells you. If your heart is seeking God's conviction on this matter, then you will be well led. It's also important to note that all of your offerings are to be treated with an administration of integrity. And that falls on our session and on our diaconate. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 verses, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. And when I arrive, says Paul, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. All right, this importance of integrity, of transparency, of wisdom in relationship to funds, how we, how we handle them with transparency and with the wisdom of good counsel, it's absolutely essential To engender confidence that all who give, that their gifts will go to where they want them to go, right? That they'll end up there safely, properly. They're going to reach their destination. All right, now one more thing about offerings. The pattern that we have always thought to be wise and helpful is the pattern that's established in Acts. Acts chapter 4, where it says that the people in Jerusalem, they brought their gifts and they brought their substance and they laid it at the feet of the apostles, trusting that God would order the apostles in such a way that they could be relieved of the burden of having to decide what to do with everything and where it goes in order that those individuals would take on that charge. All right, we don't have apostles today. We're not laying gifts at the feet of the apostles. But we do have a local church, as it has been established, and we have elders and deacons of the church who have been given the responsibility to exercise oversight of your, our, the church's financial affairs. And for those affairs, as well as others, each of us will give an account to God. Whether you're a member of a local church or just a regular attender, The place of your giving is first and foremost to that local church where you are fed and where you serve and where you conduct your spiritual life amongst those believers. It's not the only place, it's the first. The local church is the place to give adequate, for you and me, to give adequate and generous financial assistance. And then, all right, and then elsewhere beyond our borders, to the ends of the earth. All of these things about giving that I've mentioned, steady, consistent, regular, proportionate, sacrificial, and primarily through the local church, ultimately, it's a personal thing. It's actually a private thing. I, by the way, again, not in my notes, but I I don't go into the church records to see what you give. 
I don't want to know. That's between you and God. You can look at our annual budget and see if we're ahead or behind. Do we need more? Do we need to do something less? Do we need to pray about giving more, to do more? You can see that. That's why it's not particularly easy for me to talk about this sort of thing. But it's always a spiritual thing, okay? It's between you and God. It is a spiritual thing. The writer of the Hebrews says it this way in his chapter 13. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Now, you know, I'm tempted to say something that I don't want you to take wrong. I've written it down, I've prayed about it, I've thought about this, but I'm going to say, and I'm going to say it. In conclusion, Augustine, right, he's one of, the four, one of the fathers, one of the patriarchs of the Christian church, highly respected St. Augustine of Hippo. When he was asked for advice in various practical matters, and this is a scary response, but it's actually true, he used to say, well, love God and then do what you want. Love God and do what you want. Now, how does that apply to giving? Well, the same thing. Love God and then give what you want. Because you know what I've discovered in my young 60 years of life? Is that people are going to go ahead and do what they want. And our wanting, if, if, if that wanting is subsumed under a genuine love for God, then we're good. It's going to change everything. Not the least of all, it will release the finances for the concerns of the gospel, which Edgemont represents. Let's pray. Oh God, forgive us of our stony hearts. Forgive us for clinging to the world, afraid or unwilling to commit totally to you. We do pray for your rich, your personal, and your continued blessings upon us. But Lord, we also pray that the Holy Spirit would give each one here this morning, each one a peace and a joy how to steward those blessings. For we are citizens of the King of glory. We are your patriots, faithful to the Lord Almighty, in whose name we pray. Amen.